Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's go to Luke chapter 2 for this morning's study. It's been so wonderful to be in this text. And uh, my son was asking me last night, Dad, did you plan all that out and get it all just time just right? And I said, well, you know, when I was going to start Luke in the fall, I had to at least decide not to be uh, too anticlimactic by hitting all this way before the Christmas season. And I certainly didn't want to be talking about the birth of, birth of Christ sometime mid-February, uh, although it wouldn't be, uh, you know, in this church uh, an anomaly, but to be anywhere in the scriptures, but... I certainly had to map out a few things, and it's been wonderful to sort of course our way through Luke's gospel, especially because of what Luke does. He is just throwing light on every dimension, theologically and practically, with regard to the coming of Christ. And so he puts together all these wonderful narratives and birth narratives and angelic announcements, and he's just sort of showing how the Lord just splashed the earth all over the place with this coming news that Messiah was to arrive. And it, of course, had come after so many years of silence, God's people waiting and anticipating. We find ourselves now, after the birth of Christ, and the shepherds, of course, came to see the baby there in the stall. We saw that last time. And and they, according to Luke 2, verse 20, went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. And so now we, we come back now away from the shepherds' return to the field, and we focus on Mary and Joseph and the events that are beginning to surround the early days of the Messiah and His arrival. Now, in chapter 2, verse 21 through verse 40, I'm going to have to do this in two parts, and so Christmas Eve service, I will finish the second part, uh, which is a very, very important part because of some things that Simeon clearly says about the purpose for which God sent His Son and the polarization that happens to the hearts of those who come face to face with the message, the glorious message of the gospel. It's very, very important gospel stuff. And we're going to think about, on Christmas Eve, evangelism. We're going to think about the nature of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the purpose of the gospel, etc. And uh, even in light of some of the confusion about how to do gospel ministry, how to be a Christian in in a pagan society, we will clear up a lot of that by just simply working through what Simeon says to Mary and Joseph uh, near the latter portion of this section. But in verse 21 and following, we find ourselves eight days after the birth of Christ. And there's a lot going on in this narrative. I, I, uh, I will just sort of walk through it. But follow along as I read some of the opening verses here, beginning in Luke 2:21. And when eight days had passed... Before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. 
The Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. Now stop right there. There's a lot going on in this narrative and... Uh, we could put any one of the characters and circumstances at the center of what we want to study and do a separate study on all of those. There's Joseph here. There's Mary. There's God's holy law that takes center stage. There is, of course, a faithful man called Simeon. There's a, a spirit-aroused blessing that turns into a song eventually. There's a prophecy, and there's even a prophetess named Anna who spent all of her life in the temple, and she has a message to bring, even though not quoted here. She is speaking to everyone about these events for anyone waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. But in this text, though we could focus on any one of those themes, the true north of Luke here, the, the way that he frames it up and what he puts in the center is none other than God himself. Notice verse 21, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So it was God who sent the angel with the name, and the name, by the way, means Jehovah saves, or he will save his people from his sins, is exactly how Joseph was told it by an angel of the Lord. Furthermore, it was God's spirit, as Luke's already told us, it was God's Spirit that overshadowed Mary, Luke one thirty five, and of course, the child then would be set apart unto the Father in a unique sense. We'll talk more about that in a bit. In verse 25 and verse 26, God's Spirit is upon Simeon, and he's revealed to them that he'd see the Messiah with his own eyes before he died. So God is at the center of this revelation and even this character named Simeon. It is God that brought Simeon into the temple, verse 27. It is God who was the object of Simeon's blessing, verse 28. It is God's providence that brought about Simeon's release from uh, his anticipation, as it were. In verse 29, God kept his promise according to his word. So God's promise to Simeon is center stage, and God's keeping of that promise is center stage. Verse 30, it is God's salvation... I've seen your salvation, Simeon says. Verse 31, God is the one who prepared this salvation. Verse 32, it is God's revelation to outcast peoples. And verse 32, the second part, it is God's glory. God is Luke's true north. God is the center stage of this entire unfolding set of events. And listen, make no mistake, what Dan said earlier from the piano is true. God's design and preparation of salvation... His flawless, perfect fashioning of salvation is the issue here. That is the issue. Salvation belongs to God. Mankind paints his totems and creates his idols and tries to grab fulfillment and happiness all over the place in temporal life. And it never yields. It never delivers. The only one that can deliver is God. And that's because he's the only true and living God. And you know how we know it? As Isaiah the prophet said, because God says something will happen and it happens. You can talk to idols all day long. They don't speak. You can chase your idols of the heart all you want. They're in front of your face, blinding you to the one true and living God. Israel was told in Ezekiel 14. 
God prepares salvation. And I'm convinced that this is the theological frame of this entire redemptive portrait. In fact, look at verse 30 and 31. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples. God prepared it. God fashioned it. God set the stage. God decreed the plan. God unfolded the plot. God made it grand. It is God that introduces the characters. It's God that moves them around. He exerts the power. And when the Word became flesh, it was the highest, most wonderful revelation of the glory and grace and truth of God ever given. God in human flesh. Salvation was fashioned then to absolute perfection. We would never have fashioned it this way. We would never have done it this way. We could never have had the power nor the wisdom to fashion a salvation of such beauty and absolute perfection. And it's down to the last minute detail. Because God wanted to achieve every aspect of redemption, every redemptive end needed to save sinners. And so these two messages I've entitled, A Salvation Perfectly Fashioned. A salvation perfectly fashioned, and there are three design features to it that sort of rise from this narrative. Three design features. We'll cover two today, and then Tuesday night we'll hit the last one. The first design feature is that this salvation was fashioned under the law. It was fashioned under the law. It was fashioned under the holy standards of God. Secondly, it was fashioned to reveal truth. It was fashioned to reveal truth. That is to say that human beings in their fallen condition can never come up with truth on your own. We're done. The natural man cannot understand the things of God. They are, they are foolishness to us. We will stumble over them. Why? Because truth about mankind is that he is in need, desperate need. But man doesn't want to acknowledge his need. Man refuses to say to a holy God, without the grace of God upon his heart, he refuses to say, I need salvation from you, from outside of me. And so God designed and fashioned a salvation to reveal truth. And then Tuesday night, we're going to see that third design feature. This is a salvation fashioned for an ultimatum. Fashion for an ultimatum. You think this message is for everyone uh, a good one? No. It's great news. It's good news, which shall be to all the peoples. But some, in the hardness of their heart, will reject it. And it will result in judgment. Let's look at this first design feature. This is a salvation fashioned under the law. Notice, when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And then notice verse 22, and when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Verse 23 gives a little commentary on what is behind what they're doing. From the moment Mary conceived a child by the power of the Holy Spirit, God was ensuring that His glorious salvation would come under His righteous standard and it would be according to His righteous standard. 
We know that about the birth of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, because in Galatians chapter 4, Paul says in verses 4 and 5 that at the proper time, God brought his son into the world by a woman. He was born of a woman, born under the law, under the righteous standard of the law, under the holy requirements of the law. He would be a holy offspring and he would have a heart for God's holy law and he would stay under it. He would obey it perfectly. Jesus himself said it that way at his very baptism, Matthew 3.15, when he said to John the Baptist, you must baptize me because it is fitting in this way at this time for the fulfillment of all righteousness. I must stay under what God commands so that I can do what no human being can do. And so, in the Incarnation, God fashioned a salvation according to His own character. And then, in the unfolding of every detail of the Incarnation, He surrounded it with reflections of His law, reflections of His righteous standard. And that's what we begin to see here, even in Jesus' parents. Notice, when the eighth day had passed... Or when, verse 22, the days of their purification had come. This is the obedience of Mary and Joseph. This is adherence to the law of God. They were humble. They were devout. They were God-fearing parents. They walked faithfully in the paths of, right, of the righteous, trying to please Yahweh. They were sinners in need of a Savior. But God was splashing the arrival of His Son in all kinds of His holy standard. And that's why Luke highlights it. He highlights it all over the place. The law of God, the law of God. Five times in this text, the term the law of God appears. Verse 22, the law of Moses. Verse 23, written in the law of the Lord. Verse 24, what was said in the law of the Lord. And then in verse 27, according to the custom of the law. And then all the way down near the end, you see it in verse 30. Nine, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. God wanted His standard, His law highlighted in the arrival of His Son. Why? So that there would never be any legitimate, easy dismissal on the part of the religious. God didn't want some... This is such grace on God's part. He didn't want the religious who believed they knew the law and obeyed it, even though they were imperfect. He didn't want any of them to easily dismiss... The lineage of Jesus, the person of Christ, or his family line. He didn't want any, anyone to come along and have a legitimate complaint that Jesus' parents easily dismissed or had disregard for God's righteous law. There would be no legitimate accusation of his lineage, even though they would eventually try to implicate Mary in some sort of adulterous relationship. You see that in John 9:34, when the Pharisees say to Jesus, "You were born entire to the blind man. You were born entirely in sins," and then they say it to Jesus, "You were the one who who was born of a an adulterous relationship." They try to make an accusation. But there would be no legitimate accusation against the character of his parents. No verifiable charge against his family's obedience to the law. No legitimate charge about his ritual circumcision and formal dedication in the days following his birth. That's why Luke puts it here in the same formula, verses 21 and 22. And when eight days were completed, and when the days for their purification were completed, they adhered to the standards of God. God was highlighting his holy law. Now, we've already talked about circumcision with regard to John the Baptist, the forerunner. 
Well, you have the same thing here. Notice that they, they take him to be circumcised. His parents were obedient. It was required on the eighth day, the law said. And uh, by the way, they named him Jesus. You remember circumcision and the naming of the child sometimes went together. And that's why Luke mentions it here. They, they actually called his name Jesus uh, at the ceremony or in preparation for the ceremony of the circumcision. That was Joseph's obedience to the angel, Matthew one twenty one, And he also kept Mary a virgin until Jesus was born. And that was, of course, also in obedience to God's command. So their first act of obedience together was to give the son the name they were commanded to give him, which was Jesus. And that was no small gesture. It was true faith in action. And now it is time for him to be circumcised. And you remember that on the eighth day they went up and completed the process of circumcision. So at the very outset here, all of Jesus' life and ministry, he could have been quickly and easily dismissed. If he hadn't been circumcised, he could have been quickly and easily dismissed if there was some sense in which he was not set apart unto God as the law had required. In fact, Genesis 17:14 said, An uncircumcised male shall be cut off from his people, and he has broken my covenant. His parents knew that. Joseph and Mary knew that. And then there was the purification of, of Mary and, of course, the whole preparation for the ceremony of dedication. The purification of Mary. Notice verse 22. When the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed. This is ritual purification. It was commanded in the Old Testament. And uh, some of your translations, by the way, say her days of purification. The earliest evidence does not suggest anything but a plural pronoun here. So Luke clearly refers to the whole uh, entire going up to Jerusalem, the dedication, the purification, the circumcision, all of it as a package. The reason some of your translations have the singular her there is because in the Old Testament, it was in Leviticus 12, commanded for the woman only, this time of purification. Now you might be asking, why all these ritual intervals and days of purification? Listen, because in every ritual of Israel, there was a reminder of a theological or spiritual reality. God set them apart uh, with their eating, their dietary laws, and all of their function of the nation to separate them out from sinful nations. Why? Because God was illustrating a spiritual principle. I want my people separate from the rest of the pagan world. And it was, of course, very meticulous the way that they had to carry out such things. But there was always a spiritual lesson behind those those sort of rules and laws. You know the sacrificial system came around every year. You already know what spiritual themes are wrapped up in the sacrificial system. The ultimate sacrifice that would come, the fact that men need an ultimate sacrifice, the fact that bulls and goats and animals don't actually permanently atone for sin. You have to do it every year. That's just a reminder that the spiritual need is desperate and we ought to anticipate a substitute, or at least if you were in Israel, you would anticipate a substitute. Furthermore, blood itself. Leviticus 17.11 says that the life of the human being is in the blood. And when the blood runs out of a human being, the life is gone. That's why Jesus shed his blood unto death for atonement. It is the life or the blood by reason of the life in it that makes atonement, Leviticus said. 
And so blood was an image of that which was corrupted and could only be paid for by that which is uncorrupted. So Jesus, the clean one, the pure one, the righteous one, had to shed his blood as a perfect sacrifice. Every other sacrifice was contaminated. Human blood, animal blood, it's all contaminated. It's all coursing through the veins with iniquity and sin. And so, interestingly enough, in Israel, the birth of a child represented the birth of another generation of sinners. Isn't that interesting? And the woman who issues forth the child, the preparation of her body, the the recovery of her body, and all of the blood involved in those dynamics was all viewed as part of the corrupt, sinful human nature that begets another corrupt, sinful generation. That was the imagery in Israel. And so, what you had here... In Israel was this law that said, look, after the birth of a child, a woman goes into a time of purification before she goes back into the temple, before she goes back to worship uh, publicly, before she touches anything that God has set apart unto the worship of God's people. She couldn't do that. So for the first seven days until circumcision, if it was a boy, she was in a time of purification as her body recovered. And then after the eighth day circumcision, there were 33 more days or that eighth day plus the other 32. So a total of 40 days for a son before she could ever go back in and do any public worship. This was God's way of saying, look, human beings and their entire spiritual insides is corrupt and contaminated. And every child they produce is corrupt and contaminated. That was the whole point. And it's interesting, in Israel, Numbers 8, or um, Exodus, or Leviticus rather, spells out the law regarding if you had a girl. And the purification time is longer. That's fascinating because we're not really told why the purification time is longer. It's actually double, 80 days total. And some have actually suggested that that's because you're having a girl who herself will also birth other sinners in the next generation. And so it's just a reminder, a continual reminder. You say, oh, it sounds like the men got off easy on that. No. No, because you know what circumcision was? Not only was it a sign of the covenant, of being in the covenant family, not only was it a signal of obedience, a sign of obedience, not only was it permanent, but it was also a reminder that men can only produce sinners and need to be clean, cleansed. Remember when Abram and Sarah tried to create their own redemption by going outside of God's promise? You remember what happened? It progenerated an entire race of people against God's people. And so the circumcision was a, in Genesis 17, was a command to remind Israel, all you can ever produce are sinners. All you ever issue forth is contaminated, sinful, spiritual hearts and condition. And blood was all wrapped in that, the idea of it. That's what's happening here. She is keeping the law by going into this time of purification. And the reason he says their purification, Luke does, is because he's summarizing the entire scene, including Mary's time of purification and Joseph's involvement in preparing the sacrifice and the dedication that is to come. In fact, I think Luke is deliberately connecting the purification ritual, which is to be clean before the Lord before you come before him, and the dedication or consecration ceremony, which is to be holy to the Lord. Notice back in the text. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called dedicated to the Lord, holy to the Lord. 
So what you have here is Luke wrapping it up and saying, you've got Mary and Joseph heading into Jerusalem. She's waited till she's pure and he's waited until he can actually offer up the child as holy to the Lord. There's clean, there's purity. Everything is, is wrapped up in the righteousness and holy standard of God. So Luke doesn't have to emphasize the specifics of each ritual, just the overall theological significance of how God fashioned salvation. Purification and consecration. Cleansing and set apart unto God. Aren't those great themes? We see them in our salvation. When you're saved, you're made clean, covered with the cleansing righteousness of Christ, and you're set apart to be used of Him. These are great themes that were already being pictured back in Israel. And Luke's line of thinking is just absolutely marvelous on this. It's also ironic. <clears throat> Mary and Joseph were from Judah, so they were from a non-Levite family. And uh, obviously, if you had a son, he couldn't perform the priestly service if he wasn't in the Levite line. So ultimately, you'd have to go into the temple with your firstborn, and you'd have to have the priests do the priestly function on behalf of your family or the men in your family, the males in your family. So you know what they would do? According to Numbers 18, they would buy or purchase their son out of the priestly responsibility. And that's precisely what Mary and Joseph did. They paid whatever fee it was to redeem their son out of the priestly function. How ironic is that? So redemption is pictured here, even though... Essentially, this is just pictured by a simple fee that was commanded in the law of God. Luke is again reminding us that God fashioned a salvation that purifies, it dedicates, and it is flavored with man's need for redemption as all of the law of God pictured. So the 40 days of purification are over. Joseph and Mary weren't required to dedicate Jesus in the temple, but because they know who he is or they're starting to see the wonderful affirmation of all that was told them about who he is, they, they are just down in Bethlehem, so they would bring their son along with the required sacrifice and accomplish it all there. Notice uh, verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. It's interesting. They're probably, that's an indication that they are on the, the uh, less wealthy side of things because you would normally bring a lamb or one from your livestock, but in the Old Testament law, if you didn't have the resources for livestock, you bought birds. And so clearly they brought a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons because that was what, was what people could afford who couldn't afford livestock. And so this probably indicates that they're heading up to Jerusalem with just about all the money they had. Uh, by now, they're out of the stall and the manger, it seems, and into a home of some sort or a little more permanent residence there in Bethlehem, although temporary, as later will indicate when they're told to flee because Herod, Herod talks to the Magi. And then, of course, as you know, he wants to kill uh, everyone two, two year, every male child two years and under to sort of thwart the, uh, the rise to power of this king he's heard about since he's a usurper, Herod is. And... Um, and so Mary and Joseph have moved from the manger and they're somewhere in Bethlehem in some sort of uh, housing of some kind. And of course, the Magi visit them while they're in a house, uh, the text in Matthew says. But then we come to this second design feature. And here's where I want to camp out for the rest of our time. And that is that this salvation is fashioned to reveal truth 
It is fashioned to reveal truth. And we see that from the narrative of this man called Simeon. Verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now stop right there. This is, this is fascinating to me because Israel by now is in unbelief. They're in hardness. They're not even anticipating the Messiah. They're slow of heart to believe, as Jesus will later tell the disciples on the road to Emmaus uh, just after his death. There is, there is Israel in the first century, and, and they are hardened. He came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. The religious system is puffed up with its own idolatry, its own self-righteousness. And yet somewhere, tucked into the midst of that, is Simeon. I mean, it's hard to imagine in that kind of corrupt religious system, a man going up to the temple regularly, keeping the law of God, and, and he's still, guys like him are still around. This is amazing. What an amazing man. First of all, he's noted here as upright and conscientious. He's noted here as upright and conscientious. He is righteous and devout. Righteous just means walking blamelessly before the Lord. It doesn't mean he's perfect. It just means that he, he is uh, a man who is known for knowing the law of God, and he's known for wanting to obey it. How do we know that? The twin term Luke uses here, which is particular to Luke, the twin term here is the word translated devout, and it means to take hold of uh, with great care, to grab onto with attentiveness. That's the idea. The basic idea just means to take hold of something really well and become skilled in it. So essentially here, he knows the law of God and he pays meticulous attention to what God says. He is humbly obedient and he's disciplined. And what a great description of what God calls believers to be. Someone who knows God's standard, loves God's word, and pays careful attention to it. Paul would later tell Timothy in the New Testament pastoral epistles, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, listen, Timothy, you pay close attention to your life and to what you teach. And when you do that, you will ensure salvation for those that you preach to. In other words, you will have assurance that you are in Christ. And for those you preach to, God's going to use it mightily. How? Why? Because you are paying attention, careful attention to his word and trying to walk humbly in it. What a great description of this man. He's upright and conscientious. Not only that, he's gifted and anticipating I'll call it gifted and anticipating. Look at verse 25 in the middle. He's looking for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And notice verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And then at the beginning of verse 27, he came in the Spirit into the temple. This guy's gifted by God. He's graced by God with the Spirit's revelation. And he's also anticipating comfort. He's anticipating comfort, of course. What kind of guy is he? He's in total contrast to his surrounding religious culture. 
All of his brothers and sisters in the covenant community have defected. All of them are running amok, doing whatever they want to do. There's a small circle of people around Simeon with Anna and a few others that are devout, love the Lord, and are trying to be faithful to the law of God in their fear and love of God. And they are in the midst of a dark, blind, spiritual arrogance and self-righteousness. No wonder Simeon focuses on the promise of God for comfort. That's the term here, consolation. He's looking for consolation. The word look here, the verb means to welcome it with receptivity, to look for it, to receive it, to long for it, to anticipate it. Of course, He knew what Isaiah 40 verse 1 said. Comfort, oh comfort my people, the prophet said. Comfort is on the way. What kind of comfort? From physical affliction? No. Although that might happen. It wasn't from physical affliction. It was comfort from the corruption that blinds human hearts and destroys families and destroys spiritual living and consumes people with self-righteousness and blinds them to saving faith. I'll tell you, our culture is so blind. And isn't it shocking how accelerated this culture is in its plunge? Doesn't it shock you? I mean, it's amazing. We've gone from approving of same-sex marriages in in so-called professing evangelicalism. We've gone from that now to polygamies on the on the rise as a as a protected. Uh, union. Then it's going to be humans and children, adults and children, and then adults and animals, and then adults and inanimate objects. And it'll all be called union, and all be called marriage, and all be called fair game. And it's happening so rapidly. Why? Because mankind refuses to find comfort in the only place it's offered in Christ. Simeon longed for it. Isaiah 49, 13. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. And we might say sinfully afflicted. Isaiah 51, 3. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He's not talking about dead crops. He's talking about spiritual waste places. And her spiritual wilderness, he will make like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Listen, you want spiritual life to flourish? Then you must look to Christ or you'll have no holiness of heart. You can dress up your life with totems and religious idols all you want. There's no power there. Isaiah 61.2, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Mourn about what? Mourn about our lost condition. America stopped mourning about its lost condition long ago, at least enough to cry out to God. That was gone long ago. And now churches and pulpits don't cry out to God for such things. They're playing games with the culture. This is not mere comfort in physical afflictions. This is a comfort, comfort that comes from, from having our guilt removed. From having a substitute die in our place and satisfy the eternal wrath of God for us. That's what Simeon was longing for. The comfort of knowing that we now have the power over sin. The power to say no to what destroys the soul. 
Simeon was anticipating that and how gifted he was by the Holy Spirit. He was... He had the Holy Spirit upon him, it says, and then a revelation had come to him. It was revealed to him that he wouldn't see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. What a condescension of God. What a tenderness from God. What an intimate, loving, kind granting of a request. There's no doubt Simeon asked for for the arrival of the Messiah in his day. And that's really what's happening here. Simeon had probably prayed off, and Lord, I'm longing to see it. I want to see it. And his heart was so right, and it was so driven by a fear of God, and so graced by the favor of God, that his prayers rose to God, and they were tenderly and intimately answered. And so the Spirit of God moved upon Simeon's heart with the revelation that he would not die till he'd looked into the face of the God-man. Messiah. And when the Lord had fashioned all of the events leading up to this day, and God Himself had arrived on the earth, and having been born in the likeness of human beings, and when Mary and Joseph had prepared and gone through the purification period, and they had come up to Jerusalem with Jesus for the dedication ceremony. At that time, at that very hour, the Spirit of God brought Simeon into the temple at precisely that moment. Verse 27, he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, he took him into his arms and blessed God. That must have been a moment right there. Simeon walks up. We don't know if he's old or young. Some commentators think he might be fairly young, and uh, it's probably not the case, but I'm not necessarily sure he's going to go home and die the next day. But there are Mary and Joseph coming in, and there are some officials there who take the sacrifice and perform the priestly duties, and so there's a bit of an entourage with family, uh, or at least friends, or as those who know by now, or whatever the case, with the naming and the circumcision, etc. Word has gotten out. And so there's no doubt some around, but even if there were just a few, it's an intimate setting, in and up walks Simeon. And he takes the child into his arms. And what happens is that he goes from not just being a man of upright and conscientious character and gifted by the Holy Spirit and anticipating, he goes from all of that to being contented and Godward in what he proclaims. Contented and Godward. Notice, first of all, that he blessed God, of course. And notice he says in verse 30, this is your salvation, God. It's not orchestrated by men. This is what you've done. I mean, when you pray to God and he answers prayer specifically, doesn't it sort of give you chills sometimes how specific the answer comes? And you, you kind of sit there and... You know what gives me chills when God answers a prayer specifically like that? What raises the hair on my arms? It means that he's listening to everything. And he knows my heart. And bet between the time I prayed with the utmost fervor about something with fear of God in my 
in my heart to the time he condescends in intimate love and answers it. There's been all kinds of wrong things in my heart and mind in the in-between time. And when he visits you and your prayer in a specific way, he has been visiting you all along the way. It's wonderfully marvelous when he answers a prayer because then you know how intimately he loves you. But it's also frightening how intimately he knows you. And this is why Simeon transitions the way he transitions. He's holding what he's been praying for. He's holding the salvation of God. And he's staring into his face and what comes out is faith. Verse 29 and verse 30. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. This is what faith looks like, people. Worship and humble gratitude that acknowledges that it is God who delivers. It is God who answers prayer. It is God who moves when he wants to move. It is God who promises and keeps his promise. Real faith empties Yourself of self. We say this all the time, don't we? Real faith is the conviction in you of things not experienced. It is the evidence of things not seen. How can evidence not be seen? It's because it's believed by faith when you empty yourself of you. When you don't assess things according to your subjective way of looking at them. When you don't look at things with your eyesight and say, well, God's doing this or God's not doing that. Or I don't think God's on his throne. Or I'm not really sure God knows what he's doing. That's all you. Real faith sets all that aside, denies self and says, God, you promise you will bring it to pass and you will answer when you want to answer. And it's always perfect. And when I don't understand, I will trust you. That's real faith. And that's what comes out right here. You're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. I'm <laughs> Why is he in peace? You are God. I've known you, I've prayed to you, and I've received answers from you. Wow. Did he have to only have faith when the prayer was answered? No. That's why he says what he says here, because the faith came first. And by the way, I love how the Holman Christian Standard translation puts this verse. Now, Master, you can dismiss your slave in peace as you promised. That word bondservant in your translation is actually the word doulos, which means slave. I love this. Master, you can dismiss me. That is to say, dispense with my life. I'm done. I'm ready. I am at Peace, the highest peace anyone could ever have this side of glory. I have reached it. And I'm your slave. And you can dismiss your slave in peace as you promised. I have seen what you fashioned. And notice what he proclaims. There's not only worship and faith here. There's proclamation about the truth of it, verse 32, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Here it is. Here's the twofold heart and soul of Christ's advent. Here it is. He is truth. He is the light. And He is glory. He's the reflection of God's perfect character and holiness. 
He's it. And you will be familiar with those terms because of what it says in the incarnational passage of John's Gospel. John 1, 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. Glory is the only unique one from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is the grace part? That's the glory of God's perfections. He's a God of mercy and grace. He said it. When Moses saw his glory, he declared it. I am a God of compassion. Grace. I reach to sinners when they can't reach to me. I I move past sinners' stubbornness. I push past their hardness. I soften. I move upon them. I grant them grace. This is our God. And the Apostle John says that he's full of grace and truth. The law was given through Moses, John 1.17. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one seed God at any time, but the one who is from the bosom of the Father, he's explained him. Listen, that's exactly what Luke is doing here. He is recording these wonderful words of Simeon who is proclaiming these twin truths. Know the truth and know his glory through this one who has come in the perfectly fashioned salvation of God. He's probably hearkening back to Isaiah 49. Verse 6, this is what is said here. He's quoting part of it. Isaiah said, God himself says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, or we might say just the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. It's too small a thing for you just to go save Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Luke loves that because he's a Gentile. And later when Paul is in Antioch, you remember Luke travels with Paul. Paul preaches a sermon in Antioch to hard-hearted Jews and you know what? They rejected the message outright. And so you know what he said? Uh, that, that's because you don't, you don't follow God, you don't love God, you don't know God. But God is using your rejection to send me, Paul, to the Gentile world. And he quotes this passage, Acts 13, 47 and 48. Light is the revelation of God's truth to blind sinners. Here we are at Christmas time and everyone is, who doesn't know Christ you know, rushes out there to find some meaning in something. Some of them even religion. There's no light. There's no light within a man. You know, we have, we have movies that we sell to children. Oh, the light within you. Believe in yourself. Listen, that's hellish. Believe in yourself? What? To what end? There's no light in mankind. He is the light. In him was light. And the light was the, that life was the light of men. In him is light. In him is life. He's the original light revealer. He's the light bearer. He's the life giver. And he's the glory of his people Israel. That's probably a parallelism to Isaiah 60, which is which says, Arise and shine, for your light has come. There's the concept of light in Isaiah 60, verse 1 and 2. 
and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. That was the prophet speaking on behalf of God. And God was saying, light and glory are coming. And they're coming in the servant that I'm going to send. So rise up. The light that is going to be given to you has come. And it's found on the lips of Simeon at the birth of Christ. Now you might be thinking, why did you skip over verse 31? Because I believe verse 31 is, verse 31 ties it all together. Simeon says in verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. Verse 31, which you have fashioned in the presence of all the peoples. That's an interesting phrase, in the presence of all the peoples. It is God's gracious mercy. Not just God's grace to enter a sinful world, but actually to let the light of the gospel splash all over the globe. As sin had splashed all over the globe, as sin generationally has destroyed culture after culture after culture, Jesus Christ would come. And according to Romans 5, the grace that is found in Jesus Christ, the mercy that that is found in God's salvation, overpowers the sin that proliferates on the earth. It overpowers it. In fact, if you think about it, just, just, this is a horrible thought, but think about it. If... Christ had not splashed the light of the gospel of his grace upon human hearts in this, on this planet, we would all continue to destroy one another's cultures, destroy one another's lives in utter hopeless wickedness. We would end up right where they did in Genesis 6 before the flood. Only there they lived for an average of 500 to 1,000 years, so they had a lot of time to perfect sin. It might take us a little longer, living an only average of 120 years, but we'd get there. And afterward, we would go into judgment separated from God. He would have to save no one, has no obligation to save anyone. But here you have this salvation prepared in the presence of all the peoples. Right in the face of sinners. You know, God could have set it up there in heaven and said, you come get it. Well, how are we going to come get it? Well, I'm not coming down there to your sin-cursed world. You did this to yourself. You're born sinners. All you ever do is reject me. You can look at creation, natural theology, and you can see that I, I have more power. I, I'm infinitely wise. I'm infinitely powerful. I, I'm infinitely holy and righteous. You can look at creation, even of human beings, and see that, and yet you still suppress it in unrighteousness. Because your futile heart is darkened. So I put salvation up in the heavens. You come get it. There's no way to come get it. You know what God did? He, he prepared it in the presence of all the peoples. He gave us Christ, the God-man, who would come and dwell among us and live among us. And then when he rose from the dead, he sent his spirit to come live inside believers. How do the people in this community see the glory and the truth of Christ through your transformation? Through your transformed life? No wonder they're not shocked. Because the church in our culture is so shallow. Some unbeliever walks into some average church and truth isn't even proclaimed from God's holy objective word. 
People walk into a church and it's filled with unbelievers who are carnal and Christians who want a little morality and, and live in weakness because they don't really care. No, we want people to come in those doors because God has prepared a salvation and gathered up a bunch of people here in Christ to be in the presence of those unbelievers. We want to scatter from this place and let the salvation begin to splash its light in this community so that that salvation is presented to all the peoples in their presence, in their face. That's the salvation God fashioned. Isn't that wonderful? And it comes right out of Simeon's mouth. Verse 33, his father and his mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Absolutely. Well, there's a third design feature. Christ was fashioned for an ultimatum, and we will see that. Simeon's final words to them, we will see that. And then a little bit about Anna. On a short devotional on Tuesday night as we celebrate Christmas Eve together. Bow with me for a moment. Lord, thank you for for these wonderful narratives that Luke has recorded. What a grace to us. And it happened in that lovely place. It happened in a town, a village that no, no one would recognize, the prophet said. It's a small, no-account place, living off the scraps of the center of worship there in Jerusalem, which was now filled with such false worship. And you came, and your light exploded from that place. Everyone it touched just could not help but be stunned. And those who were longing for it, like Simeon, exploded with worship faith and proclamation of these wonderful realities that you are the truth bearer. You, you are the light bringer. You're the glory explainer. So we thank you. And we pray that you'd help us to live in such a way that these realities are evident. That we would see churches strengthened in these realities so that our witness would not die on the vine in a culture rapidly denying these truths. Give us courage and strength. We pray in your name. Amen.